Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we revisit the three-part California Adapt series, and this is the second in that three-part series. On occasion, I go back to the archive and share what I think are really incredible episodes. Maybe you missed it the first time it came out. My listener base has grown since it originally aired, and I like to bring some episodes up front and center in case you haven't explored the archive. This was a very unusual episode for me. I was able to travel all over the state of California, interviewing experts and Californians who are helping their state adapt to climate change. It was an epic journey. The first episode was a history of environmental issues in California, so we could ground you on how the state has responded in the past. In the second in the series, we'll explore the five most important elements of climate adaptation in the state, fire, drought, flood, temperature, and sea level rise. And finally, the third episode will take a look how the state is doing on adaptation. In my original introduction that follows, you'll get more background on who sponsored this and what we were trying to accomplish. I hope you enjoy the re-release of this series. On the second episode of California Adapts, Sponsored by the UCLA Institute of Environment and Sustainability, we go into the field. First episode, we heard about the Great Flood of 1861. Leland Stanford got in a rowboat and rowed to the Capitol, and then the legislature gave up and moved to San Francisco until the waters receded. California emerged as a national leader in environmental protection, epitomized by how they dealt with the Los Angeles smog crisis of the 1970s. You can make a change. And we did that. And guess what? Businesses didn't go broke. People made money and there were jobs created making catalytic converters. Even with four times the cars, millions more people since 1970, they are as much, much cleaner than it was. We now see that our air pollution is uh, at levels that were almost unthinkable then. And now California Governor Jerry Brown has grabbed the mantle for the entire issue of climate change. This uh, move by Trump makes no sense. It's going to hurt America, and it's going to cost jobs, not the reverse. California leads on climate, but there's a problem. The reputation is based on mitigation, meaning things like reducing carbon emissions, which is great. But what about getting ready for the massive climate changes we know can't be stopped? This is where we come in with the America Daps podcast. It's time to explore. For California, there's five main aspects of climate adaptation. Fire, drought, flood, temperature, and sea level rise. For each one, I'm going to talk to someone on the front lines, plus some scientists. We begin in the popular resort town of Ojai, an hour north of Los Angeles and about 20 minutes in from the coast. We're at the southern end of the devastation from the Thomas Fire of December 2017, the largest fire in the recorded history of California. I'm here with Tony McHale, a fire captain with the Ojai Fire Station. He was in the thick of the weeks-long firefight. We're on a hillside just a quarter mile from residences where everything is blackened from the burning. What was it like just before the fire started? The chaparral was the driest I've ever seen it. I've been a firefighter for 20 years with the county. I knew on Sunday that it's, it's not looking good. I came on duty on Monday the 4th, December 4th, and during the day it was windy, it was pretty harsh, but thinking, and then sure enough, later on the day when things really start to dry out, usually fires get started later in the afternoon because things dry out and cure. The winds were insane. And then 6.30, bam. Uh, we had a, what we call a, an index that we use called probability of ignition. And it was 90%, which means that any embers that get into a receptive fuel bed have a 90% chance of igniting. What we were hearing on the radios <laughs> in terms of Acreage, like they were saying, yeah, it started off at being, like, like first night I couldn't believe it. They were saying, yeah, yeah, it's 50 acres. Now it's 500, 5,000 within a half hour. That's how, that's how wind-driven it was. It was just moving so fast. I can hear the voices, you know, people that I've been listening to on the radio for years. You know, they're professional and they're solid, they're dialed in, but I can tell from their voice, like, this is gnarly. This is going to be a serious fire. Draining were those first few days. I was on duty straight from December 4th until December 19th. 
I think the first day I went without sleep for 56 hours. And, um, you know, that's where you start getting loopy with can, you know, sleeping if you can on the grass, you know, in front of someone's house. But then they get you off on operational periods. So then they had us 24 on, 24 off, and they bed you down, feed you. It's a whole structured system. They bring in field kitchens. They set up in a, it could be a big park or a fairgrounds or whatever, and they bring in equipment. Be chaos with homeowners. It creates a lot of anxiety when you have the public trying to stay and defend their houses. And I understand we can't make them go, and I'm not going to, I'm not in the business to make people go, but I tell them, I said, hey, you know, nothing's more precious than, than your own life. And, but I tell them it creates a lot of anxiety for us because our first priority is human safety. Tony talked about what they call a career fire. One so large, it defines your entire career as a firefighter. 2017 had not only the Thomas fire, but also the horrific Santa Rosa fire in the north that claimed 44 lives. Here's the weird thing about it. Career fire, okay, great. But I've been on two career fires within one year. So what does that mean? Yeah, so when I started in 1999, a typical fire season went from June to November, mid-November. Occasional anomalies, but pretty steady, pretty predictable and we staffed accordingly. And then uh, now we're, we're seeing that we're getting fires any time of the year. I mean, I've been on fires in January, February, I've been on fires, which is completely unheard of. Tony, you had said to me the Thomas fire was a game changer. What did you mean by that? The game changers are the weather. The climate is changing. And we're, the fire service, it's kind of an unspoken rule. We have to adapt to that. It's just a new reality. We're seeing bigger fires, we're seeing longer fire seasons, we're seeing bigger and more destructive fires, and we have to adapt accordingly. And, and so you know, that, that means looking at our staffing levels, becoming a little more adept at, at some of the new fire science that's out there with uh, fire behavior, um, dealing with our tactics, staying physically fit. You know, um, we owe it to the people that we serve to be that way, but we have to adapt. So, it's been stunning to see the miles of burned landscape around Ventura from the Thomas Fire, but the question we really want to know is whether this is the result of the changing climate. It's time to talk to some scientists, starting with Alex Hall of UCLA's Institute of Environment and Sustainability. Alex, do you think the increase in fires in California is the result of climate change? Well, yes. So there are observed sensitivities of fire characteristics to climate. And we know that the climate is changing in a way that will increase fire size. So you've been studying the issue of fires in California for quite a while now. It's been an incredible journey for me. As a graduate student in the 90s, when I was going into this field, we made predictions of increases in fire size and fire risk in Southern California a few years ago. And it is, it is very strange to see these things happening. <laughs> Was there anything that surprised you about the recent fires here in California? Well, I mean, I was as surprised and shocked as, as everyone was by the size and intensity of these fires. And also, um, the, the Southern California fire, the Thomas fire, was was particularly shocking because of the time of year when it occurred, because it was a Santa Ana-driven fire. Um, and those happened in October, um, and this one happened in, in December. Um, so it was a very strange occurrence It would be... I don't know, like 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 snow happening in in June um, in Maryland or something. I mean, it was a bizarre thing, and because uh, that's just not our fire season at all. So so there were there were some peculiarities, and of course the size of the fires, their intensity, the f the fire modeling community um, is is very surprised at their inability to model these fires to predict them. There's something different about the way they behave. So you could see some of the fires from UCLA campus, right? Yes, we could see the the Skirball fire, which was up in up in the hills. It happened um, right right here near the campus. The campus was evacuated and was used as a um, as a center to support the firefighting personnel. They were taking their showers here and resting and relaxing, and you know in the in the centers on campus and I mean it, it was it was a very unusual event for sure. Leroy Westerling is another climate scientist in California studying fire. He's a professor in the School of Natural Sciences at the University of California Merced. Leroy, did you grow up here? I did, yeah. My family's lived here for five generations. So. What would you say is the most shocking thing you've seen with regard to fire since growing up here? Well I don't remember there being this much fire year in and year out. And uh, it's really kind of 
debilitating almost. You, know, you don't want to go outside. My lungs hurt. I was coughing for, for months this fall and winter uh, because of the, the smoke and the, the effect on the air quality. First from, I live in Mariposa area, and we had a huge fire there. My whole town was evacuated. I, I can't think of a year where you had as calamitous a fire year in, in Northern California and in Southern California and in the Sierras all in the same year. That, that's just amazing. Why do you think it's been so widespread? Our ecosystems here have been drying out because the, war- the warmer it gets, the more evaporation there is, the more demand for water. The atmosphere tries to draw water from the ecosystems and from the soil. And so in your wet years, it's drying out, and in your and so you're carrying less moisture over from your wet years to your dry years. And then in your dry years, you're evaporating that much more and you have less water carried over from the preceding years. So everything's just drying out constantly. And yet not everyone thinks that climate change is the biggest factor. John Keeley is a fire researcher with the U.S. Geological Survey. I think the, the, the most important message I try and get across to audiences when I talk about these instances is... There's probably been too much emphasis on global warming in some landscapes. In fact, we just had a paper published uh, this week, in fact, in the Proceedings of the National Academy that looked at uh, national patterns of fire activity and climate and came to the conclusion from the data we looked at that the importance of climate in determining fires across North America is largely a function of people. And where there's more and more people, there's less evidence climate is determining fires because humans undoubtedly are overriding the climate signal. But Leroy Westerling doesn't totally agree. Just because you add more people doesn't mean you add more ignitions necessarily. What really matters is whether or not they can escape control and start growing rapidly into really big fires or not. And climate plays a big role in that. One, one thing to keep in mind is that when fires are ignited by people, they're generally ignited where lots of people are, <laughs> which means that they're detected very quickly and they're accessible. They're usually along roads. Um, and so if uh, if the resources are available, there are, most of them are put out very quickly before they ever have a chance to, to spread very far. And so the real question is what what kind what drives the conditions that make them escape control so quickly? When it comes to this question, everyone's in agreement. John Keeley. We have a much more important factor, and that is uh, extreme weather events, in particular the autumn Santa Ana winds. With the, uh, the Thomas fire in uh, December in Ventura, those Santa Ana winds blew for uh, over a week, and it turned out to be the largest fire in recent history in Southern California or in all of California. Which brings us back to Fire Captain Tony McHale. He took part in the horrific Santa Rosa firefight. He talks about the role of the wind. I don't know if you are familiar with the area up there in Santa Rosa. I was talking to fellow firefighters and they said when that thing came ripping into town, it looked like lava, totally wind driven. They call them Diablo fires. Those are their east winds up there. They were, he said the, the fire was so wind driven. The fire was like following the contours, moving like lava, casting embers three quarters of a mile to a mile ahead of itself. And not just little embers, we're talking showers of embers, what we call fallout. And, and I mean, literally they set up their command post in town in front of a giant Kmart, huge parking lot, should be a safe area. That started catching on fire and they had to abandon their command post. It was like broken arrow time, you know? So how's the state doing for adapting to fire with regard to climate change? The state has a strong fire response program, as Tony McHale mentioned, but the climate is changing in ways that are hard to predict. So what seems certain for the future is that there will be a lot of fire, but then there might eventually come a time when there's just not much left to burn. This is what Leroy Westerling suggests, which actually sounds a little grim. I think the landscape where I live in Mariposa is changing pretty dramatically before my eyes. We, we lost basically all the firs and pines around the town where I live in the, in the drought and the beetle kill after the drought. As it continues to dry out, I think it's gonna look more like San Bernardino and less like Sierra Foothills. Uh, and, and eventually, you know, we're, we're looking at a climate more like Baja, California. So.
When I say resilience, what first comes to mind? Resilience. These are hard questions. <laughs> it's too early in the morning. Um, being able to rise back up after having something bad happen. What about in the terms of environment? If I say environmental resilience, what comes to mind? Um, green grass after a rain, especially in LA because everything's really brown right now and we just had a rainstorm, but the trails have like beautiful grass growing right now. What do you think is one of the biggest climate change issues uh, that's facing LA? Um, water. Why? Lack of water and, and you know, look at Cape Town right now, they're suffering literally like 90 days of water left. It's scary here. So if there's one single most important resource that defines the history of California, it's water. In fact, if you look at the recent Thomas fire, you see it was sandwiched on either side by a four-year drought so severe it's referred to as a mega drought. Then it was followed by flooding so devastating at least 25 people were killed in the areas around Santa Barbara. Water has been the challenge for California from the start. How do you save enough to make it through the droughts? Then how do you deal with the massive floods? The two elements, drought and flood, are of course tightly interconnected. But for our examination of climate adaptation, we have to pull them apart. So we start with drought. Perhaps the most knowledgeable person in the state on the subject of drought is the woman the New York Times dubbed the state's water czar, Felicia Marcus. She's the head of the state's Water Resources Board, so she's based in the capital, Sacramento, where I visited her. Felicia, what are we looking at here? We're on the Sacramento River, uh, near where the American River comes into it, but we're standing uh, on the walkway of the city of Sacramento's main water intake structure, which is a beautiful a beautiful facility. So you can watch the river roll by and you can think about the role that the rivers play, um, both in terms of obviously transportation uh, and aesthetics and all of that, but also um, for fish and wildlife. Well, I'm looking out at this river. Is this a normal level? I mean, is there a reservoir at the top of here? Oh, there are many reservoirs up at the top and they funnel into the, the mighty Sacramento, which is our biggest uh, river down in this part of the the state. What people don't realize very much about California water is how dependent we are on storage. California wouldn't be possible without the vast network of storage facilities and canals that built, you know, LA, Southern California, uh, Central Valley um, in the latter half of the last century is all because folks were able to capture water in those wet years and wet seasons to be delivered in the dry years and the drier seasons because it doesn't fall during the time of year that it's most used. Tina Swanson of the Natural Resources Defense Council talks further about how California managed its water problems in the past. We built dams, we built canals, we built pipes and pumping stations so that we can move water primarily from the northern portion of the state where most of it falls as rain and snow, to the south. So basically, concrete made it possible to move water all through the state, and that inevitably made for conflicts, as Felicia Marcus notes. There's a lot that's made of the fights between farmers and fishermen, you know, between different water users. You know, sometimes people think of it as water users versus environmental purposes. I mean, whatever you call it. Those fights that we've had that are famous, made famous by the Mark Twain alleged quote, whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting. Now, if you ever saw the classic movie Chinatown, that's what it was all about. The water needs of the city of Los Angeles versus the farmers in the Central Valley, fighting back and forth for years. Those fights seem like a picnic compared to what we'll see under climate change if we don't light a fire under ourselves. I have said that we have this freight train of pain coming at us that we can see. So shame on us if we don't get cracking on trying to make ourselves more resilient. What she's referring to by freight train of pain is the predictable, inevitable large-scale shortage of water that everyone knows is coming soon. Tina Swanson elaborates on this. 
The state of California is already living beyond its water means, even given its current very complex and very impressive plumbing system, which allows it to capture lots of water and move it to places where it is needed. One of the most um, well understood effects of climate change in the state of California is that where previously most of our precipitation, which happens during the winter and the spring, fell as snow in the mountains, in the future, more of that precipitation is going to be falling as rain and less as snow. Felicia Marcus. Well, I think it's Governor Brown who's the one who spotted it. I mean, here you have a governor who's ahead of his time 30 years ago and uh, focused on energy conservation and many other things, but the energy conservation miracle, that's California. And he comes in and is looking 30 years ahead and could see this issue of what people are now calling snow drought uh, because of climate change and said, whoa, we've got to get on that right away. Felicia told me she went up in the mountains in 2015 right at the height of the drought. So what, what did you see? What no you- snow. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing being up in the Sierras where I knew there was normally, you know, sometimes huge snow drift, other times, you know, a foot of snow or patchy snow and see absolutely nothing. And to me, all I thought of were those poor people in the Central Valley on shallow groundwater wells who were out of water. So I just, you know, up in the Sierras, I could see the pain that would happen uh, that that coming spring and summer for the folks throughout the Central Valley. What she means by groundwater management is the system of underground aquifers and wells. Tina Swanson. Groundwater is like our savings account. And what we've been doing in order to keep ourselves living at the level of, of water use that we've been doing is is just depleting that savings account for us. And we don't know how long we have until it's gone and it's not accessible. Um, But there have been places in the Central Valley where people's wells have gone dry. The other major natural water resource is what lies above the groundwater, referred to as surface water, which is the system of reservoirs and rivers. In California, groundwater and surface water have been historically managed completely separately, um, which flies in the face of what the science tells us about groundwater um, and because they weren't managing groundwater, was very poor long-term planning, particularly as regards to future droughts. And here's the problem for groundwater. Well, California has, is, of all the states in the union, the one with the weakest groundwater management rules anywhere. So there, we're doing actually a very bad job of managing our groundwater, and we're way, way behind schedule as to where we should be in terms of um, stopping the over-depletion and bringing the groundwaters into balance. All of this means there's a need to change. Our entire plumbing system, and in particular our reservoirs, were designed and built and are currently operated to capture snowmelt. They are not operated to capture rain, nor do they have the capacity to do that. Um, So that system isn't going to work as well in the future as it has in the past. So that's going to require some changes. Change is going to be the challenge, especially for agriculture. Ashley Bourne is the executive director of Sustainable Conservation based in San Francisco. Her organization works extensively with the agricultural community on water-related issues such as overdrafting. Hey, Ashley, can you tell us what overdrafting means? Farmers have been overdrafting, or that area has been overdrafting its groundwater aquifers, meaning that they're taking out more water than is being put back in. And we have very serious overdraft to the point where we've got you know, land sinking, wells going dry, land going out of production. And we believe, and our partners have demonstrated, that you... Those farmers can accept large volumes of water in high water years, recharge the aquifers, and not have any impact on the health of their crops or the yields of their crops. So they can become part of the solution in recharging aquifers and helping the state adapt to to climate change. Do you find it difficult to talk to farmers about climate adaptation? You know, it's interesting. Farmers, they say, you know, we always adapt. The weather's always been changing. We've always been adapting. That's just what we're doing. And so that's why that's an easier angle to get in to be talking about it. And they are seeing that there are 
more extreme droughts, more frequent flooding events, and so that's what we have to prepare for. But that's why we, because climate change has unfortunately is politically charged, so we usually talk about it in different ways. Again, extreme events, droughts, preparing for drought is usually the way they, they do it. For the final word on drought in the state of California, I'll hand it back to the state's water czar, Felicia Marcus. There's a way to be creative and adapt versus insisting on uh, doing things as they've been done in the past. Because as I said, the past is no roadmap for the future. droughts we're losing because of droughts we would be losing a lot of water and California is kind of a desert land so we would need the water and droughts is like harmful and that also I feel like with the not a, not a lot of water could possibly be cause wildfires mm-hmm. uh, several neighbors have gotten you know like uh, water-friendly gardens okay that's one way like regular folks are doing things but otherwise no there's no consciousness The flip side of drought for California is flooding, which we can talk about in two forms, chronic versus acute. Acute flooding would be catastrophic floods like the Great Flood of 1861 and 62 that we heard about in the first episode from Dr. Jeff Mount of UC Davis. It was the most severe natural disaster to ever hit the state. Jeff was quick to point out it wasn't just a fluke. It will come again. In fact, state planners are so certain of its inevitable return, they've developed what's called the arc storm scenario. Daniel Swain of UCLA's Institute of Environment and Sustainability is a climate scientist. Daniel, what exactly is the arc storm scenario? It's referred to as California's, quote, other big one. The original big one being a large magnitude earthquake on the San Andreas Fault near Los Angeles or San Francisco, which would obviously... Uh, be be devastating as well. Um, we sort of think of these these events on a, a similar order of magnitude in terms of the impacts they would have on on infrastructure and the economy and the people who live here. The arc storm actually comes from a natural disaster contingency planning scenario from the state of California, and what it stands for it's actually an acronym. It's the Atmospheric River One Thousand Storm. Um, breaking that up a little bit, uh, the, an atmospheric river is a very real and formally defined atmospheric process. Um, it's a plume of really concentrated atmospheric water vapor um, that when it, it, it sort of attaches itself to a broader storm system can bring really extreme precipitation to places like California where we have big coastal mountains. Most of the big floods in California historically and really along the west coast of North America They're all associated with atmospheric rivers. Is climate change increasing the chance of the arc storm scenario? It's something that even without climate change, um, it's something that people in California were aware of and worried about. And it's something that could have happened and will eventually happen even without global warming. Um, It's plausible at this point that global warming will make an event like that more likely to occur in our lifetime. The real problem is being able to predict these large-scale events of both flood and drought. Why are they so unpredictable? In 2013, Daniel coined a term for the mechanism that explains a lot of this variable weather for the state. Daniel, what is the ridiculously resilient ridge? Yeah, the ridiculously resilient ridge is the nickname of a specific region of atmospheric high pressure over the North Pacific Ocean that deflects storms away from California. And when it occurs during the winter months, it can essentially lead to drought conditions because we have such a well-defined rainy season here in California that if we don't get that water during the winter season, it isn't going to come during the rest of the year. The ridiculously resilient ridge is like a boulder in a stream. And the stream is the jet stream, that river of high-velocity air in the upper atmosphere. And the ridge itself is like a big boulder that rolls into the stream and deflects the flow of water. Um, and this metaphor, this works really well 
because the jet stream is a river of fluid. The air is a fluid, just like water is a fluid in a mountain stream. Um, and so it's quite literally true that you have this area where there's actually more air mass, in a very literal sense, that's deflecting a stream, much like a boulder would. So we have this boulder, this ridge, this ridiculously resilient ridge, deflecting the jet stream. And historically, it deflects it to the north. So it redirects all the storms that might normally be pushed along by that jet stream into the Pacific Northwest or British Columbia and leaves California dry. You coined the term the ridiculously resilient ridge, right? I did. It was something that was sort of uh, a tongue-in-cheek reference in a blog post of mine back um, at the very beginning of the, the most recent California drought in 2013. And uh, it, it sort of it got picked up by the media and it sort of took off from there. And it sort of has a life of its own. And now it's a term that's used um, pretty frequently. I mean, it's there, there, you often hear questions about whether the ridiculously resilient ridge has returned any time where we have a dry spell in California. You've actually been blogging about the weather for quite a while, right? Yeah, so so I, I have uh, run the California weather blog. I kind of interchangeably call it Weather West as well. Um, for, well, I have to think about how many years, since 2006. The other part of dealing with floods is what we could call the more chronic problems of the annual rains for the state. Jeff Mount tells of how that challenge is met. When the flows get big, we now use weirs, giant weirs, to funnel water out onto the floodplain and route it around Sacramento. And that's what we often call the moat between Davis, where I live, and Sacramento. Uh, and that's, they will route the flood water back out on the floodplain. And they learned all this from the 1861-62 flood by watching where that flood went. So it turns out to be a pretty progressive at the time, because they thought it up in the late 1800s and then began to implement it in the early 1900s. Uh, in fact, it was one of the world's most advanced flood control systems. So how is flooding managed today? The Central Valley here, in fact, throughout California, we rely very heavily on dams uh, to help us out. I mean, there's more than 1,400 dams here in California. Uh, and dams try to basically mimic what a floodplain does, and that is, is they, they take off some of the water and store some of the water and then give it back to the river after the main flood wave has passed. And if you've got a perfectly empty dam and a, flood, and a big storm comes in and you, you capture a lot of that water so you don't get damage downstream and then once the rain is stopped you let the water out of the dam uh, so you can sort of gently let the water go down the stream. Well that's all fine in concept. Uh, in reality these things go, go south on you pretty quick uh, in the really really big storms. First of all so many of these dams just don't have the capacity to capture a flood that they, they are filled early in a flood and then they're useless. Once they're full, they're useless, and all the water's got to go over the top or through their spillway. Uh, that, ha that has happened here in Sacramento in the past with the Folsom Dam just upstream. So that's, that's one, uh, one, one issue. The second issue on dams is that we're in, we're in constant tension with dams. We don't know uh, at the beginning of the wet season whether we're going to have a drought next year or whether it's going to be a wet year. Right? So we're all hedging our bets. So I guess flood planning is challenging. Drought planning is easier than flood planning. Uh, people don't die during droughts. To prevent a flood from causing serious damage uh, is, is unthinkably expensive. And so who's going to put up the money for it? Especially at a place like this, uh, you know, where we've got you know, property rights are supreme. People don't like to pay taxes. Nobody trusts the government. The, the flip side, you have the Dutch, who've done a very, very good job of planning for these extreme, what we can call low probability, high consequence events, they do a good job. But they have a very different governance system, very different culture, much very top down. Uh, and we just don't do it that way here. So this is one of the big struggles. One of the big handicaps we have here is that there's a national policy, there's a set of national policies that really are the main driver of flood management. Uh, and that's the National Flood Insurance Program, which is run by FEMA. They set a standard, which is this 1% flood, uh, that you have to protect to 1%, up to the 1% flood. This came about in the 60s, and that 1% was a magic number. I mean, nobody did, I mean, it just was easy, it was easy to, 
easy number to choose. Uh, it's meaningless is what it is. But the standard is so low, it has actually led to the opposite of what you want. It has actually promoted development in areas which are extremely high risk. To California's credit, here at least here in the Central Valley, we said that that standard, a federal standard, is not good enough, so we actually doubled it. Okay, so it's a, this is a, the half a percent flood. Uh, you call it the 200-year flood if you want, and that's the goal. But the way they calculate it is this arcane approach, which has been around for a century, where they basically take the historical floods and they take the statistics of the historical flood and use those to predict what would be this 1% flood. But their approach is antiquated. That is a major problem. Other than some, than some pockets in the Senate and House and a few other places, the scientific community thinks that historical approach of just using a statistical analysis of floods is insufficient because it's changing. They've got a fancy word for non-stationarity. Uh, it's, it's shifting. So what we need there is to start incorporating bigger margins of safety in our, in our flood planning. So we end up with a problem similar to the last segment on drought, that there's a need for change and updating. And then when you think about the nightmare scenario of the arc storm, I guess there's also a need for good luck. So out of these climate impacts, which one concerns you the most? Flooding, because as you can see from Houston, it's really um, bad because it like totally took out neighborhoods, cities, and um, just like people don't know how to control it because it's just like mother nature's. Okay, that does it for the drought, fire, flood trio that usually gets most of the climate-related headlines in California. But here's an interesting factoid. So most people don't know this, but um, by far the biggest um, threat to to health and safety uh, from natural disasters um, are heat-related events. Uh, Heat waves take more lives than uh, hurricanes, than floods, than uh, earthquakes. You take all of those threats, you, you combine them, and the heat effects of people dying from heat stroke, heat exposure, the cardiovascular disease that arises, that's exacerbated from exposure to warming, those things take more lives than all the other natural disasters uh, combined. I'm in downtown Los Angeles with Jonathan Parfrey, the founder and director of Climate Resolve, a nonprofit that is hard at work on adapting populations to our changing climate. We're here to talk with him about this fourth element of climate adaptation, rising temperatures, which are most serious in urban areas. So Jonathan, what are we doing here? Where are we headed? Well, we're on a city street in South Los Angeles, and we are about to walk onto a cool street. And it is called a cool street because um, the Bureau of Street Services has laid down a slurry of reflective material, this material called Cool Seal. And uh, this is part of a pilot project that they've been engaged in to see if there are ways in which we can design our streets so that they curb the urban heat island effect. So I see a line here. Is this the old asphalt and this the new? Or That's they... exactly it, so yes. We, I think we're gonna do an experiment here. Did you right. think we'd be able to? I brought a, um, a laser thermometer. So the first thing that we're going to do is find a nice patch of black asphalt. So I'm gonna go right here. Alrighty and I hope I don't get hit by a car. And so, let's see. Okay, it says that it is Uh, 81.3 degrees. It's not too bad. Not too bad, that's the temperature of the road. That's the old asphalt, and so now we're gonna go. That's right. And we're just walking a few feet from one, one side of the street to the other. And now we're going to see if this uh, more reflective material is cooler. 
So, here. So that was 81.3, and this is 77 degrees. Wow, so this actually looks like even a sunnier spot, and it's it is. cooler. It is cooler. So, this is, and then there are other materials that can be used on a street. So for example, here is a, uh, here's some concrete. And that concrete is around 76, well, now it's in shade. It's around 77 degrees. So when it comes to uh, paving streets, the city of Los Angeles has a mix of asphalt and concrete. And now it has introduced this new kind of cool seal to its, um, to its asphalt. In fact, the city of LA owns two asphalt factories. And so its preferred material is asphalt. And that's why our organization has been championing the cool seal because most of the streets in LA are gonna be paved with asphalt. So let's take advantage of that and let's find the right material to help keep LA cool in the face of that. So I'm looking at probably 200 yards of this. There's a lot more roads in LA than that. Oh yeah. How expensive is this? How, I mean, how are you gonna even fund this? What's the plan for that? So as it is right now, this does cost a little bit more, but the Bureau of Street Services is looking at this material uh, and applying it more broadly because one of the things that ha makes streets deteriorate is the heat effects and you have to repave on a more frequent basis uh, the hotter it gets. And so you actually might be able to prolong the life of the street by having this cool seal on top of it. So this is part of an experiment that the uh, Bureau of Street Services is engaged in. And the next step is to look and see if we could take these cool streets and do it over the length of an entire neighborhood and to see if we have a cooling effect where it's not just one, you know, 200 yards of street, but if it's uh, perhaps, you know, 20 or 30 blocks of cool streets. And we'll see if that also cools down a neighborhood. So is this, but this is mandated now, like all new road construction? No, this is an experiment and uh, this is a, a, there's 14, different pilot projects right now related to cool streets throughout the city of Los Angeles. And there's about to be a 15th and because there are 15 council districts. And so there's gonna be one cool street per council district. What is mandated are the cool roofs in Los Angeles that every new or refurbished rooftop has to use a cool roofing material. That's mandated. This is your first time here at this location. It is. So what, does it meet your expectations? Does the temperature that's lower, is that yes. around what you wanted? Well, we're here on a January day. So um, okay. there is a bright sun and, and uh, so we're seeing about what a seven degree difference in temperature between the traditional uh, dark colored asphalt and the cool seal. But imagine it's, um, you know, a much warmer day in the summer where it could get up to, you know, 90, 95, 100 degrees in this neighborhood. And to have a street that could keep that neighborhood cooler, I could see that being a, a real benefit. More likely that kids will stay out and play a little bit longer yeah, in the morning exactly. and into the afternoon. You know, we, we hear these stories all the time of when it gets really hot, the asphalt actually sticks to people's shoes and it almost turns into like bubble gum, you know, it, it presses down and it deteriorates. But with this cool seal, the advantage is that it, um, it, it's something that could last longer. And so we're experimenting with that and we're gonna see how it does. The cool roofs, is that what? what then there are cool roofs. These are cool streets and then there are cool roofs as well. So what are some of the strategies to keep the temperatures down in the city? So cool streets, cool roofs, green gardens. I mean, what, what are yes. you pushing? Tree at? canopy is also absolutely critical. Our organization, Climate Resolve, we, we changed the city's building code and this is what we did. And so we like the idea of there being more trees planted and the trees will in turn keep the buildings cooler uh, so they don't have to use as much electricity to keep the refrigerator cool. They don't have to use as much electricity if there's air conditioning being used. But one of the reasons why, frankly, we like 
cool roofs is because about 50% of the homes in Los Angeles, they don't have air conditioning. And so to save lives, to, to keep people you know, healthy and happy, if they have a cool roof, they're going to do better during those heat waves than people that are just cooking inside their own apartments. Heat is clearly a lethal threat, but there's also a lower level, more long-term impacts that if you document them may draw the attention of the broadest of popular media, which is what happened to economist Alan Barreca of UCLA's Institute of Environment and Sustainability. Turns out climate change might have a downside because a new study claims humans will have less sex on a warmer planet because, and this is a quote, hot weather leads to diminished coital frequency. <laughs> also leading to diminished coital frequency, the phrase coital frequency. <laughs> Check my coital frequency. So, Alan, that was your research he was referring to. What was your study about? So, I work on studying or quantifying the effects of heat waves on our people's chance of dying. So, how do, how do, how do heat waves, how do they affect your chances of, of, of dying early? Heat is the real killer. And I think that's especially true in Southern California. Heat kills uh, through, through a couple different ways, but the main one is that, that, Heat puts a lot of stress on your cardiovascular system. Your cardiovascular system is working hard to keep you cool when it's hot outside. But what, what's surprising is that air conditioning is actually can actually reduce the chance of you dying almost 100%. And that's what I found looking, looking at historical records throughout the United States. So I, what I did is I put together about 100 years of mortality records across the entire United States, and I looked at okay, when there is a heat wave, how many more people die, say in California in 1930? And then I look, you know, I follow this, this, check out this pattern, you know, heat wave, how many deaths? And I look in house to see how that pattern changes over time. And what happens is starting around 1960, the same time air conditioning is introduced, uh, the cost of air conditioning fell, more people are building homes that are come installed with, with central air conditioning that right around the same time, the chance of you dying during a heat wave falls about 80%. My research is showing that, that extreme heat is really bad for your, for, for your health. And you have, it really increases your chance of dying from, from uh, cardiovascular stress. So right now, a hot day, which is a day where the temperature gets above 90, we have about 30 days per year on average. Uh, and I expect those to be, by the end of the century, these hot days to go up to about 90 days per year. So we're tripling our risk. So throughout the state now, there are lots of people working on this issue of how to cool down our cities. As the temperatures rise and keep sitting record highs, the problem gets increasingly urgent. Juanita Constable is with the Natural Resources Defense Council and is special projects director of their Climate and Clean Air program. As Jonathan Parfrey said, extreme heat is the deadliest weather disaster in the United States. It takes more people than floods, than hurricanes, been cold. And in fact, heat can kill you in 27 different ways. So it's not anything to mess with. Why are cities so bad? For one thing, cities are built environments. They're very dense. The air doesn't move as well as it does in rural areas. There's lots of heat absorbing uh, surfaces like pavement. And when it comes to low income neighborhoods in particular, um, or communities of color, they're often in the densest, most built-up parts of cities. So they're more likely to experience higher temperatures than more affluent and often whiter suburbs or even, um, you know, more open areas and cities. The other issue for low-income neighborhoods is that they are less likely to have air conditioning or the ability to afford to pay for it. Nearly one in five Californians were in poverty in 2015. Families in poverty pay a much larger percentage of their household income towards housing costs and energy costs, which means that when it gets really hot, they might not be able to turn their air conditioning on. In 2006, a devastating heat wave hit the United States. California had the highest death rate in the nation, 
County coroners reported at least 160 deaths from the heat, but a report from California Climate Change Center said that the number was an underestimate, that the death toll was at least two to three times greater. Juanita, can you tell me more about how the 2006 heat wave impacted California? Sure. So in uh, 2006, that was one of the worst, probably the worst heat wave on record in California. And death estimates really vary um, from a few hundred to a few thousand. This is one of the most significant problems when it comes to addressing heat-related illnesses and deaths is we don't have a good count on exactly how many people die. And that's because heat affects us in a lot of different ways. Um, Often if someone has a heart attack or a stroke during a heat wave, their medical uh, record says they had a heart attack or stroke. It doesn't relate it to the heat. But multiple studies have found that extreme heat increases the relative risk of death by tens of percentage points. And as the climate changes, experts think that the U.S. will see hundreds to thousands more deaths every year across the country, especially in urban areas. So what's the solution to heat stress? Okay, so the top three ways that we can address heat-related illnesses and deaths as the climate changes is to number one, make sure that people have the information that they need about the risks of heat and how they can keep themselves safe. Number two, to make sure that people have access to air conditioning near their homes or at a lower cost. And number three, to make buildings more energy efficient, especially low-income homes where people are already experiencing really high utility bills. So what's being done to help with access to cooling during heat waves? So we know that air conditioning saves lives. And in Los Angeles, there are a lot of different cooling centers, for example. There's uh, swimming pools, community centers, seniors centers. The question is, how many people actually use the cooling centers that are available to them? So a recent study actually found that official cooling centers were only accessible on foot to 3% of LA County residents. So the cooling centers are necessary, but we need to do a better job of locating them close to the people who need them. So what's your thoughts on cool roofs and cool roads? So cool roofs can help take care of some of the urban heat island effect that we're already seeing. But if we keep polluting the way we're doing, they're not gonna knock back the temperature very much in any one place. And cool roads are even worse in some respects because it takes a lot more water and energy and carbon pollution to make the kinds of cool pavements that we need to actually reflect sunlight. So they're they're more energy intensive than traditional pavement. So I worry that we're too focused on what seems like quick fixes for a much bigger problem. I also worry that public health officials are always scrambling to prepare for the disasters of the past and not the disasters of the future. And that's understandable given all the other demands on their time and energy, but we don't have the luxury to keep planning for the past. So there are lots of good programs in the works, but as Juanita Constable said, if only 3% of people can make it to the cooling centers, Clearly, a lot more work needs to be done. What, when I say climate resilience, what does it mean? What comes to mind? Holding back on uh, on the Weather Channel. (laughs) What about what about mitigation? I say climate mitigation. Is that? I need a dictionary. Okay, we're on the home stretch here. The last of our five climate adaptation elements: sea level rise. I'm on the central coast of California, home to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I'm with one of their most distinguished professors, Gary Griggs, who recently stepped down as director of their Institute of Marine Sciences after 26 years in that position. We're standing next to Pleasant Point, one of the most popular surfing locations in the area, and I'm wondering about something called maladaptation, the idea of thinking you're adapting to the climate, but what you're actually doing is making things worse. So I'm looking at, you just pointed out this riprap, and these people are looking like they're having a great time. These kids are surfing and the dogs are running around. (laughs) I get that they're trying to armor this immediate coast, but 
isn't that just maladaptation, buying yourselves time for something that's inevitably going to happen? Right. You know, it buys time, you're right. And we've had structures that have lasted the big seawall along Ocean Beach in San Francisco called the O'Shaughnessy Seawall. Brilliant coastal engineer, and that's been there since 1930. <laughs> but it's massive. It would cost you $10,000 a foot to build it today. Um, but most of those have a half-life, you know. They're not going to last forever. And I think we're at the point now where we've got to start saying, okay, we're not going to build any more. So let's step back a bit in time and figure out how we got into this predicament with the oceans now attacking coastal regions. When did sea level rise start becoming an issue? We've had roughly 8,000 years of stability, which interestingly happens to correspond to the entire period of human civilization. At the time sea level stabilized, people evolved from sort of hunter-gatherers to farmers, and they could, uh, things got warmer, you know, we had crops that produce seeds and things they could store and these deltas and in, in fertile floodplains were were stable so they could start to live there for a while so all the early civilizations started about that time but if you look at what's happening today instead of you know maybe a millimeter per year in those years it's now 3.4 millimeters per year you know three times as fast so and i would say in all likelihood sea level rise rate is going to increase everything is pointing in that direction and i I will say unequivocally that this is going to be the biggest challenge human civilization has ever had to face. We've lived our whole period of civilization with sea level stable. And it's hitting California now. Right. I finished a paper recently called um, Lost Neighborhoods of the California Coast. (laughs) And I looked at places where entire blocks and streets have gone in the water. And you say, you know, it's already happening. You just don't know about it yet. (laughs) So... On the cliffs, they're, they're being lost, too. And we have places where it's being lost at six inches a foot, two feet per year. Um, and that's going to continue. And we have this state agency, the Coastal Commission, that's basically trying to say, we don't want any more seawalls. We don't want any more oceanfront development. that we just have to move later? So I think people may be in denial that own the property. Do you think California is in maybe, not, I guess, in denial about sea level rise because of just the geology of the state? West Coast is a bit different. I mean, our coastline is totally different. So instead of a broad, sandy coastal plain on these barrier islands that are a few feet above sea level, it's, you know, a lot of it's coastal cliffs. So we don't see it quite the same way. But around San Francisco Bay, it's a huge issue. And we've already got, you know, tidal flooding onto the Embarcadero in San Francisco, this main thoroughfare. And you can see waves washing up there at high tide. And people are saying, whoa, these so-called king tides, these extremes we get. So where is this all headed? Well, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. I think that was from Yogi Berra. So three feet we kind of settle on, and now all of a sudden with the ice in Antarctica, we're saying, oh, could be eight or ten. So this turns out to be the big problem for sea level rise, uncertainty. Glenn McDonald is a faculty member with UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. He studies sea level rise in coastal wetlands and knows the issue well. Glenn, will there be a foot or six feet of sea level rise? That's a really great question. How do you pick a number? What's the number we're going to choose? And the state has commissioned reports. They commissioned a report in 2010. They commissioned a follow-up report in 2017. And the fact of the matter is you simply cannot choose one number. There's two uh, levels of uncertainty here. One is the uncertainty about how much CO2 we will continue to add to the atmosphere and CO2 equivalent greenhouse gases uh, over the 21st century. And uh, there are various uh, um, estimates based on the, you know, radiative forcing in watts per meter square, anywhere from 2.5 to 8.5. Right now, we're on the trajectory for the high end of that. If, If we don't do anything, we are on the trajectory to hitting the high end of the amount of CO2 we add to the atmosphere by 2100. Then the next uncertainty is, how is then the Earth uh, system going to respond to that in terms of melting of Antarctica in particular, and of course also uh, melting of uh, Greenland? We'll see thermal expansion of the oceans. We will see loss of ice and uh, flow of water into the oceans. But really, how fast will Antarctica and Greenland respond? That is a great uncertainty. That's why estimates go from anywhere less than a meter 
up to, you know, let's say 1.6, 2.3 meters. Those are all kind of in the general ballpark. But regardless, the level of the ocean is rising. So what are some of the major areas of vulnerability for California? Both uh, the major airports in Los Angeles and San Francisco, for example, are at low elevation and particularly prone to being inundated. Our major highways, uh, energy infrastructure, and very expensive real estate. So we have a built-in social vulnerability. We also have unique ecosystems that are very, very important. These are the coastal uh, marshes and estuaries. 90% of California's coastal marshes have been impacted in one way or the other. The strongest impacts have been in Southern California. On top of that then, you add accelerating sea level rise, which has the potential then to inundate these sensitive ecosystems, particularly the vegetated ones, the ones that have cordgrass and pickleweed on them. Uh, And there's no more room for them to expand inland. Is the state addressing these issues? The state is very progressive. As I said, they commissioned a report in 2010, another one in 2017, really the best scientists, to kind of advise them on where we're going with this. Um, Sea level rise planning is is part of what the state does at a state level. I think money is going to be an obstacle. There's no question about it. And especially if you're looking at a state budget to support things. So how urgent is this problem of sea level rise? Gary Griggs. What I would say is the good thing and the bad thing about sea level rise is it's happening slowly. (laughs) One of the challenges for the average person, it's still so incrementally slow that something else is a bigger problem. But I mean, it's creeping up on us. And if we don't do things soon, we're going to lose a lot more in the long run than if we start making changes now. One of the general solutions is managed retreat where structures are moved back away from the ocean. Is that happening in California? Despite our leadership, I only know of three places in our 1,100 miles of coast where there's a plan for managed retreat. None of them have been done, but there's an approved plan. One is on Ocean Beach in San Francisco where they're gonna move the road in. There's nothing there, so it's again, it's it's an easy one. (laughs) In Pacifica, You come down by the water there where guys surf. There's a big parking lot and a Taco Bell and a bathroom. They're going to move that back. That's easy. The other problem is there's no money. There's no staff. There's often no political support. So we're sort of up against a hard place in Iraq right now with believing that adaptation or managed retreat is a good thing to do. But when do we push the button? Because it's a really expensive button to push. Glenn McDonald. I think in general, in terms of sea level rise and anticipating sea level rise as we move through the 21st century, the state of California has been forward-looking and has been progressive. And the government agencies and the, the governor and the, you know, and including the Republican Governor Schwarzenegger as well as current Governor Brown, have been aware of this problem and have been involved in doing studies and thinking about how the state is going to cope with it. And the final word from Gary Griggs. So I think gradually with what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years, people are starting to get the message that maybe they're kind of off base. At least many of them are and are starting to understand that, yeah, you can't can't keep fighting the water. that does it for our tour of California looking at various aspects of climate adaptation for the state. We've heard from nearly 20 experts on what we feel are the five most important elements of climate adaptation for California. It's been a lot to take in, but there are some clear themes that have emerged. In the third and final episode, we're going to try and make sense of all this. We're going to look at the scores that we collected from all the different experts on how they feel the state is doing in adapting to their element of climate change. I'm going to talk to the producer of this three-part special, Randy Olson, on how he feels the climate community is doing communicating this message of climate adaptation. And we're going to check in with some of the voices from the beginning of this journey for their overall thoughts on what we heard. So join me in the third episode where we pull together the grand synthesis of what we've learned on how well the state of California is going and adapting to climate change.
Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to the second episode of California Adapts. I hope you enjoyed it. Episode 3 is now available to download. Hope you can finish the series. You won't regret it. Again, thanks to the UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability for sponsoring California Adapts. This three-part series was produced by scientist-turned-filmmaker Randy Olson. For more information on Randy, please see the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends and colleagues on social media. Those links are also in the show notes. If you are interested in doing a similar podcast project focusing on any number of topics related to climate adaptation, please contact me. My contact information is in the show notes or at the website americadapts.org. If you want to hear more about these adaptation stories, I speak at conferences, events, and to private groups. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. And don't forget to download Episode 3 of California Adapts.